Hello, thanks for downloading this University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman and this week we've been speaking to Dr. Alan Richardson from the School of Sport and Service Management. Alan's research focuses on the physiological changes and human tolerance to severe environmental exposure. He's asking for people running the Brighton Marathon to come forward to take part in some research measuring core temperature during a marathon. So we talked about that and how to get involved as well as his extensive work with the fire service. So I've been at the university a while now. Um, I currently teach physiology, mainly exercise physiology, to largely sport and exercise science students, but also sports coaching and physical education, and physical education with QTS. And you've been at the university for for, for quite a while. Yeah, 12 years, yeah. yeah. It was way back. So um, can you bring us up to speed on your career then? So I did my uh, undergraduate at Brighton as well. And I then went on to do a PhD uh, again at Brighton, although part of that was at University College London because um, I, I did my PhD on uh, hypoxic tolerance. So how people tolerate altitude and why some people don't tolerate altitude very well or why they get ill. And part of that was working with uh, Extreme Everest, um, which is, as, as it sounds, uh, a, a large uh, medical expedition in 2007 to Everest. Um, so that sort of was in the middle of my PhD, uh, but I finished it at Brighton and um, then went straight into straight into lecturing here. I did a I did a bit of time uh, whilst doing my PhD in London as a clinical physiologist, which is essentially um, doing cardiopulmonary exercise tests, so sort of maximal exercise tests on patients that were going to undergo surgery to sort of determine whether they were suitable to go into surgery. Um, that was back in 2007, 2008, and now it's it's got quite big. It's a lot of uni- a lot of hospitals doing that now, and it's becoming progressively more a, a job to do. Um, most hospitals will probably be doing it in maybe five, ten years' time. We're going to talk about your research first, then we're going to split it into two, really. So we might talk about some sort of sport-focused stuff, and then maybe some of your main research about with the, with the fire service. Yeah. Um, but we'll start with the sport bit because you bit of a call to action for anyone getting involved with the with the Brighton Marathon to undergo some research. Yeah, so this year and every year, so the last four years, we've um, done an annual uh, research project with the Brighton Marathon, so we're really closely with the, the medical team. So we've done a, a project on cardiac injury, uh, we've done a project on renal function in marathon runners, and this year we're doing one on hypothermia and how that um, affects the the person's health, so we're measuring core temperature and heart rate, and and comparing that to their their cardiopulmonary exercise, um, their fitness, and also taking blood samples before and after the marathon to look at things like inflammation and endotoxemia, um, just to see how the person's um, responded to to getting hotter or to getting hypothermia. Yeah, is that quite a a common thing? for endurance sports um it we can be a reason people collapse mm. so many people that do collapse are usually hypothermic once they've collapsed i mean it's not necessarily quite so common in let's say this is a colder country but let's say during the tokyo olympics or mm. you know a, a, an event in say qatar you know that could, that could be much more of a common um occurrence um but if we take the the brighton marathon two three years ago when it was really warm there was a huge number of of hypothermic um, cases it, it can just be a randomly hot day but but people still can get um hot during marathons even in in a, in a sort of thermal neutral environment mm. um, 
So what are you hoping to find or expecting to find from the research and, and what can sort of be actioned from that potentially? Um, so we would expect to see a number of people getting hotter, clearly. Um, it's interesting to see how hot they are actually getting um, and whether that's related to whether they're working harder or whether it's whether they're working longer what maybe predetermines people um, to getting hotter during a marathon, whether it's their previous training or previous experience with with marathon running. And then sort of secondary to that or alongside that, and we're interested in seeing the, the, the ones that get hotter, what are they experiencing? Are they experiencing more inflammation? Are they um, experiencing issues with their, their gut? Um, potentially endotoxemia for, for the people, people that are experiencing hypothermia. Um, so there were a number of different questions from it, uh, really. So you're asking for volunteers to come forward. What do people need to do if they want to come forward and what would they be sort of giving up and having to do? So the ones that are running the Brighton Marathon, um, it'd be fantastic if you could take part in the research. So uh, if you wanted to take part, there's sort of two options. There's um, you need to provide a blood sample before. So when you go and pick up your race number at the event, and then immediately after the, the race. Or if you're living locally, um, particularly in the Brighton or Eastbourne area, um, we'd love you to come and do a, a VO2 max test, which is about a sort of 10, 15 minute run to maximum, um, and also to swallow a core temperature pill and, and have that in whilst you're doing the race, and again, provide a, a blood sample before and after. And from that, we can tell you how fit you are, uh, how hard you're working during the race, how hot you got. Uh, and to do that, if you want to take part, you can just email me. It's a.j.richardson at brighton.ac.uk or you can get me on Twitter at alanrichardson underscore. Um, so they're the ways of contacting me if you are interested in taking part. Cool. And you've obviously got a, a good relationship with Brighton Marathon, having done the research in yep. the past. How productive have those previous projects been? Well, the first the first study we did on cardiac injury, that actually produced three papers, so two original research papers and a, and a review paper. Um, the, the one on uh, renal function, that's currently got one under review and another one in, in production. We're still, still analysing some of the, the urines from that that study a year ago it takes a long time to do research yeah, yeah. <laughs> loads more samples coming your way as well i'm sure yeah um, <laughs> um staying with physical activity i know that you, you've talked about um some of your work with altitude training which is yes. interesting to get your view on this i guess because we're um i guess we're looking at quite a lot of elite athletes that will be preparing to go to the olympics yeah yeah uh, this year they'll be probably doing altitude training around now yep for the someone that doesn't know that much about it how much benefit would altitude training have but at the same time would every elite athlete suit it well so there's two good questions there generally it's believed that altitude training does work uh generally that may not be the same for everyone so you know it's hard to put a number on how much it's actually going to improve a person by um let's say you're a super elite athlete let's say you're mo farah if he could get a half a percent improvement as a result of going altitude training then he's going to take it um for a normal everyday person it, you know it might improve them by maybe a couple of percent it's 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 hard to say it sort of goes to your second question of who suits it you don't really know until you get there you know you might be not very tolerant to altitude and it might may, may work, make you ill if you go too high so you might get gastrointestinal symptoms and might feel a bit sick, a bit nauseous, quite lethargic. And therefore, you're probably not going to be able to train as hard 
and therefore you're going to get sort of a negative training and 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 be and altitude training actually becomes a negative thing mm. um the whole thing with altitude training is actually if you go too high you can't train as hard or as fast and then you might not get the the benefits as if you were just training at sea level mm. so there's this whole live high train low um sort of without getting too long into this <laughs> but the idea is that you you live maybe at um maybe two and a half three thousand meters and then in train slightly lower than that so you can um work slightly harder when you're doing the training and, and get the benefit from it there right and i guess like from your research that you've done in the past and then i guess taking it away from an elite level but talking about sort of general tolerance yeah what sort of it's probably hard to put a number on this what sort of percentage of a population do you think would not just 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 doesn't get on with altitude that's whether you're it, i guess hiking or whatever or just living in yeah. altitude. It's, it's such a it's such a gray area because it's 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 how high is high you yeah. know if we're all to fly into kilimanjaro and then get another flight to Lukla and start walking the the everest base camp trail um which is you know, a really common thing and, and a lot of people do that every year you probably find that maybe 25-30% of people will get some kind of acute mountain sickness. Certainly they'll get some kind of headaches. Whereas if we did Kilimanjaro, because it's a faster ascent rate, um, you find that might be in the sort of 50%, mm. uh, maybe even higher. Um, it, it's it's a really grey area because it's it depends on how fast you're, you're walking up the hill, as, as in how quickly you're ascending the mountain. Um, how many days you're doing it over, how many rest days you're doing it, how how hard you're working, so what you're carrying, how fast you're walking. It's it's really difficult to put a number on because there's so many sort of things that are, are, not, are not set up. Mm. Um, but I'd say, depending on what you're doing, probably between 25, around about 25 to 40% of people will get it, depending on what, what you're actually physically doing. As part of that research, have you been at altitude? Uh, yeah, a lot. Well? Yeah, so, like, yeah. How, how do you... Get on. I'm I'm pretty good at it actually. Yeah. You, <laughs> I think it's your trainer. Uh, so do you run at it or? Cycle well, the, or? at the University of Brighton Labs over in Eastbourne, we have this really cool uh, hypoxic uh, chamber. So that goes to uh, well, it's actually eleven percent oxygen, which is around about sort of four and a half to five thousand meters. And a lot, I spent a lot of my PhD in there testing people for hours. Right. And I think I developed some kind of hypoxic tolerance, like right, altitude okay. training, and then having to go to Everest and spend probably three or four months um between sort of namchi bazaar which is at 3500 and and uh, every space camp which is 5300 meters it, you develop quite a, a good altitude tolerance i suppose over that time yeah I, so I didn't i didn't have a problem at altitude yeah okay let's move on to your i guess your main research at the moment which is with the the, the fire service yeah well, what sort of thing are we looking at so i've been working with the fire service for about eight years now um they first approached me because they were concerned about um how much um, their fire instructors were doing um so everyone's aware of what a firefighter does they, they go into a fire they put it out um but a normal firefighter probably sees maybe one fire a month maybe two at a push from the, the research we've done whereas a fire instructor they're the ones that train the firefighters and they may do, we've got reports of anything between sort of 10 to about 35 exposures a month. And that is a lot of time in fires. Mm. And um, they're the ones that can actually get ill from sort of overworking, sort of sort of overtraining response, overstress response. Um, that's obviously 
because when you're going into a fire, you get an increase in your core temperature and your heart rate. So your core temperature might go up to about 38 and a half, 39 degrees. Um, you know, your core temperature, your, your heart rate's going to be raised for that whole time. And they're doing, and an exposure might last about 40 minutes. If a normal person was to do 40 minutes most days of the week at 38 and a half degrees, they, they wouldn't feel very well. And um, so we've had sort of fire instructors reporting symptoms of like broken sleep, random heavy sweating, muscle cramps, um, you know, sweating out soot, uh, really bad mood swings. So what we've been trying to do is is show whether this is isolated to fire instructors as a result of what they're doing as a, in their working environment and trying to evidence how much they should be doing because a fire instructor has to teach a firefighter or from all over the world what to do to put out a fire but how much should they be doing and this kind of relates to other tasks you know we might have nuclear power workers or or construction workers um how much should they should they be working are they are they doing too much and would that start affecting their health it's interesting because you know i say i teach sports science and i did that as a degree but Mm. I, i don't really do much with sport anymore and it and it it's amazing how much sports science or physiology translates to lots of things in life. Now I'd consider myself as a physiologist now and it, and it, and it relates to, you know, occupational and and stress responses and, and medical disease states. It's, it's all sorts of things. And, um, you know, when a student might think they're going to sports science and they see the sort of the obvious side of it in football and rugby and athletics but a lot of I find a lot of the students get really interested in actually the things that they might not have thought of when they first come to university, like you know, occupational exposure of riot police and firefighters and you know, miners or you know, people that are um, having extreme stress as a result of their job or their lifestyle. I guess well, it seems like it's sort of taken hold of you as well, if it's been going on for eight years now yeah, I just like it because you can see yeah. the impact of it you know you work with the firefighters and the instructors and they, they're clearly interested they want to know how this is affecting their health and this is currently a big thing all over the world right now particularly regarding uh, cancer risk and firefighting and, and the contaminants they might see you know, we're all aware that you know the fire generates the smoke and the smoke contains certain contaminants and depends on what you're burning it's got different contaminants in it but we're not sure how much goes into firefighters. There's been quite a bit of evidence that there's, there's contaminants getting into firefighters, certain contaminants, but we're not sure necessarily whether that's directly going to cause cancer. Um, you know, is there a greater cancer risk in, in if you're seeing and um, getting contamination? Uh, there's, there's, there's sort of provisional work in, in America being done and Sweden um, and Canada. But it, but it's very hard to evidence that. Mm. Uh, you know, I get emails from firefighters saying, oh, I've, "I've, I've been doing it for thirty years, and now I have cancer." Is there a, a way of saying that? You know, is this as a result of my job? And it, and it's, it's, in, it's almost impossible to say. You know, we, there's so many confounding factors in people's lives about why they're getting ill and, and because of what they've done in their life. Mm. And as much as I'd love to respond to them and and, and help them in some way. Um, research takes a long time and it's really hard to evidence certain things and um, hopefully someone in the future will be able to to say you know, or find ways of, of reducing 
um, potential contamination of, of occupational workers to these sorts of things. Mm. That's quite a hard email to receive, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, really. I've, I've probably about probably 10, 15 emails as yeah. a result of things I've written or, or TV programmes and things, especially after the BBC uh, programme. It, it's really hard to, to deal with because I'd love to give them the answer that you know, they want to hear that, you know, it's, it's because of this or that, but it's, it's impossible to say. Um, there has been sort of evidence collected in America using huge sort of epidemiological studies uh, on, you know, thousands and thousands of people to show that there's a greater risk of or there's a greater incidence of certain cancers in ex-firefighters or certain occupational workers um, but there's just not enough evidence on those kind of things yet to, for me to say you know that that could happen. Mm. Coming back though to your successful research so far so what have you what sort of the the key sort of findings that you have found during this time that have really been made a, a significant impact. Yeah, so the, I mean, I guess one of the recent ones we we finished is um, looking at the number of exposures are the instructors are doing and demonstrating the the ones that are doing sort of more than about ten a month. So we we compared firefighters and instructors and, and showed that the ones that are doing more than about ten a month are at greater risk of having raised inflammatory responses, um, sort of a, maybe some kind of immunosuppression, um, but generally sort of response of ill health, let's say. Um, so there can be sort of a limit on, on what we should really be allowing our instructors to do. Um, again, really difficult to, to evidence though, because people have different lifestyles and, you know, some of them might be eating well or doing lots of exercise, and it. But you, so you need big groups to compare between. But yeah, that that's probably one of the bigger ones. We've also demonstrated things like pre-cooling of firefighters and and fire instructors. Uh, we're looking at ways of physiologically monitoring firefighters and instructors to. You know, so let's say you, you're putting a, a new recruit into a fire for the first time we don't know how they're going to respond to that fire they might be quite anxious they might not be very good uh, they might not have a very good thermal tolerance um so you really want to know how they're responding to that so there's so there's sort of technologies trying to develop ways of measuring core temperature and heart rate and and identify the recruits that aren't doing so well and get them out before they do get ill because you know, although a firefighter has to put out a fire in a training environment, they shouldn't be put through too much stress that actually are made unwell or, heaven forbid, worse, you know, worse than that. Mm. Um, and so there's there's various bits being done to to try and bring into policy um, how we uh, deal with recruits and instructors in, in training environments, how to keep people safer. How much do the fire service sort of take on board this what 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 so we've been finding it and actually putting them into practice so we've we've been working with the fire brigade union and also a, a company called um, beach designs a media company um we got funding through union learn um which so we made a a package called the heat Ill, heat illness prevention and awareness training so it's available to uh, via the fbu so the fire brigade union's website um, and it's a training package for all firefighters in the UK um, on how to deal with, with heat stress, heat injuries, um, you know, to try and keep them 
safer when they're dealing with a fire, particularly in fire training episodes where you control things a bit better and look after your, your welfare more. But what firefighters and fire instructors and recruits can do to to help themselves and the package is really cool actually the 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 beach designs made us incredible videos of of sort of teaching firefighters and the recruits you know, the physiology of how they're dealing with stress what's actually happening to their bodies and and how and how they can help themselves sure um let's return to your teaching very quickly yeah, yeah. is it something you, you still really enjoy doing and i read that you you try and make things a little bit different if you can yeah i, I well i really like teaching that's why i'm here let's be honest I, I i really enjoy teaching particularly the big groups i try i like to try and make lectures entertaining so sometimes you sometimes with with physiology it, it's, it's difficult to get some of the the more um challenging principles across and try and make it mm. make it fun um particularly on sport and exercise science i've got some we've got some really good labs and we try and make them really hands-on and people get involved and i find that by students actually getting involved and, and taking part and and having the opportunity to play with the equipment and, and take the measurements they're going to learn much more than me standing at the front talking for an hour mm. um so we try and get them in the labs as much as possible they get a lot of lab time at, at the university of brighton and um and I think that really helps with their learning. When you you say offer, there's obviously a lot of universities that offer sports science now, uh, and students probably get wooed by some really fancy labs that they might see. But you know, they, do they use them all the time? Um, there's a lot of labs that you'll see, but they're actually for research only. Whereas at the university, that we have these labs that they're all for teaching, and teaching takes priority, which is which is fantastic actually. Mm, and still have some fantastic facilities so we got we got heat chamber so that goes from sort of minus 10 degrees to plus 50 degrees we've got the hypoxic chamber i mentioned earlier so that goes to like 11 percent oxygen so sort of four and a half five thousand meters uh we've got um like the wada um biochemical labs we've got um two physiology labs a biomechanics lab we've got the brand new strength and conditioning uh, gym that's just for, yeah that's yeah. just for our strength conditioning and sports science students and and also for physiotherapy and uh, health that looks like something straight out of uh, Premier League football ground. yeah it is Tra- it really is I mean we ground, there's a great there's a great gym anyway uh, on the Eastbourne site that we did have for our strength conditioning that's got drop down screens where we did the lectures um, running track through it. It, it that's fantastic on its own but now we've got a dedicated teaching space as well as that um, that's got isokinetic rigs in it. You know, the, people see them and they think, "Oh, that looks all right," and they don't realise they're like ninety thousand quid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a uh, yeah, it's a really really cool facility. Yeah, cool. We uh, we end every every podcast with just some sort of quick fire questions yeah. away from your work, just to get to know you a bit better. So they're all very simple stuff. The first one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? I didn't go to a particularly great school. And uh, the, where, where I went, it was there was no sort of expectation on you. And I'd probably say, like, aim higher. I'd, I had very little career advice. It was just go and do whatever you thought was a, a good idea, what was fun at the time. But I'd say aim higher than what you, what you think. You can probably do more, you can achieve more than you think you can when you're at school. And uh, it makes you realise that you know, if you're not maybe at such a good school, you know, really go and talk to your peers, talk to your your family, talk to people that in jobs that you, you might think you like. But I didn't really consider my career when I was really young and I probably should have done better than that. 
Good advice. Um, if you could pick a completely different subject to study at the University of Brighton, what would it be? Well, kind of linked to the first question, really. I'd have probably, I wish I'd study medicine because okay. I, you know, I've moved my career into sort of getting into that realm, being a physiologist. Um, but part of me wishes, you know, maybe when I was younger, I'd done, I'd have done medicine and you know, that. So yeah, um, can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? Well, I love golf, uh, yeah. so there's nothing better than playing golf on Eastbourne Downs, looking over the sea. You can see the whole of Sussex at the top of the Downs, just in Eastbourne. It's beautiful up there. Yeah. Um, if you could give visitors to Brighton and the area a tip of what to do or experience for, I don't know, a weekend, what would it be? What would the itinerary look like? Mm, whole weekend. I'd say, you know, if you come into Brighton, although Brighton is very cool, lively, bustling, and the lanes are great, and you go out for dinner, it's nice, and go to the Comedia. But also get out of Brighton. Like, there's some beautiful countryside, and there's some lovely places outside of Brighton, like country pubs around sort of Lewis and Ditchlin and Alfriston. You know, there's some really nice places between Eastbourne and Brighton, that, you know, nice beaches, particularly like Seaford Beach, much quieter, lovely promenade. You know, there's, there's some really good places outside of Brighton as well. Mm. Um, tell us something interesting about you, which most people may not know. Probably, I'm not as a good one, but um, what people don't know is my, my brother died when I was doing my degree. And um, I was thinking about this, that students don't realise that lecturers are aware of, if they're going through a bad time, mm. they probably don't think their lecturer is aware of what it's like to deal with bad things. And I think actually a lot of lecturers do realise that, you know, and, and reflecting on me going through a difficult time when I was doing my degree, I probably didn't do as quite as well as I wanted to during my degree um, because it was difficult for me. But I, but, you know, I, I want the students to realise that lecturers are aware of, you know, that they can go through difficulties and there is mitigating circumstances that, and, and don't be scared to go and talk to your, talk to your lecturing staff because, they know and they may well have experienced similar stuff before and I think some students often feel um, like worried about coming to talk about things and actually they, they shouldn't be they should they should know that people have, have all been through different things yeah I, I guess do you think that sometimes that is related to the fact that sometimes people come from I mean, you, especially the younger students yeah. the more traditional route where you've come straight from school yeah, yeah. and that relationship between teacher and yeah, student exactly. as well as a lecturer and student is very different isn't mm. it it's a bit more it's a bit more open and casual than yeah, yeah. it should be. Always on, I guess on the, the courses I teach, there's such a fantastic relationship between the students and the, the staff, but it takes a while to build it. Mm. So when the first students come in, they are very much like a, a teacher-student relationship, and it takes a while to break down that, that sort of boundary between the two, in the, and it becomes a much... You know, by the third year, the students are much more open about you know, talking in tutorials and classes, and it's much nicer they 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 realize that actually they they can they can be themselves they can ask whatever they feel comfortable asking there aren't any silly questions um but yeah when first students turn up they they're so they're so guarded and worried mm. about making themselves look silly from asking questions and it doesn't take long for them to realize that that isn't the case and we don't feel like that at all and it, we are just just humans and we do want to really really help final question is if you could pick three people to host for a dinner party who would they be and why they could be past or present. I should really offer some kind of very high profile, cerebral, like politician, like you know, Obama <laughs> and Donald Trump, and something like that. But I, I, to be honest, I'd much prefer a, a fun, 
sort of I'd love to have more Rory McIlroy for, uh, have over dinner and learn about what he thinks about golf and his golf swing. I'd love to meet Jurgen Klopp. I think he's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, probably someone like Mickey Flanagan just to make everyone laugh. But yeah, I I, yeah, I wouldn't want to wouldn't want to highbrow worry about thinking what I'm saying kind of dinner. Thanks to Alan for his time. For more information on the research at this year's Brighton Marathon and details of how to take part, click or tap the links in the podcast description or email a.j.richardson at brighton.ac.uk. If you're not already, remember you can subscribe to our podcast via most podcast apps. Just search University of Brighton. We're on all the main ones like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. But for now, thanks for listening.